We're going to look at Christ this morning, and I would ask you to uh, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to read verses 14 through 18. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. The author writes, To the Hebrews and to us, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of gathering together in your name. We thank you for the opportunity to sing to you, to pray to you, to open up the word of life in our language and read it and study it and, and, and together come to a greater understanding of who you are. And Lord, we would just pray that this morning you would push back the, the, the boundaries of our understanding of our Savior that we may see his glory, and as a result of seeing his glory, we may be one more degree transformed into his likeness. That we may represent him to our communities, to our families, to our workplaces, and to a lost and dying world. And we pray in his precious name. Amen. Please be seated. Gordana, who I mentioned just a few minutes ago, along with every Roman Catholic needs to see who Jesus Christ is. They need to understand that Jesus Christ is God. He is God. He is greater than Mary. He's greater than any saint. He is God, very God. And we as Christians are used to fighting the battle for the deity of Christ. When someone comes and knocks on our door and uh, wants to talk to us and and we realize very quickly they're uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, at least I don't know if they still make their ways around the communities here in Georgia. They certainly do in Karapina, Croatia. We are used, we're ready. We're ready to, to go to them and say, look, you need to confess that Jesus Christ is Almighty God, which they refuse to do. We understand that, that Muslims today need to understand that Jesus is more than a prophet, he is God, very God. Modern man needs to understand that Jesus is God. He's not just a great teacher. He's not just an influential figure in history. Even liberal Christians, even superficial Christians need to understand that Jesus is Lord. And as Lord God, he deserves authority in our lives. We must submit to him. And we are so focused as believers on the deity of Christ that I fear that sometimes we fail to focus and think about carefully and practically his humanity. 
Of course, we know that Jesus came to this earth, that he was incarnate, and, and that he was hungry, and that he was tired, and, and that he died. All things that humans do. But beyond that, I think sometimes we fail to think about his human experience and what the implications of that human experience is for us. We forget that the early church had to deal with both aspects in discussions and battles and and councils that lasted decades, even centuries. The greatest minds of the church in the early centuries hammered out the doctrines of the Trinity and of the divine and human nature of Jesus Christ. As they tried to define clearly what was out of category, what was unique, what was distinct from any other man-made religion. And they concluded in Chalcedon in 451 that the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man, has two natures. This is how they defined it. They didn't make this up. It was them recognizing an existing fact. Two natures, very God and very man. Without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. The humanity of Christ equals the divinity of Christ in its importance for us. And yet, I believe we often neglect this truth. We do not consider its significance in our lives. The writer of Hebrews dwells on this truth throughout his epistle. And he proves, as we read earlier in chapter 1, the superiority of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the greatest revelation of God. He is greater than creation. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. Greater than the law. He's greater than Joshua. He is the pinnacle. He's the zenith. He's the apex above all. And he is also the great and perfect high priest. And one of the reasons that Jesus Christ is the perfect high priest is that he is perfect man and yet is also God, very God. And so beginning in chapter 2 of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews draws our attention to the humanity of Christ. And he affirms that the humanity of Christ and he gives us five reasons why the eternal Son of God had to become man. But if we tend to think that when Jesus walked on this earth, that he barely touched the ground, or if, if we assume that Jesus' battles and struggles were somehow easier than ours because he was still God, if we see his glory as revealed in his deity, and yet we fail to see his glory as it relates to his humanity, then we will not grow in likeness to him as we should. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And as Matt Papa says, we all need an unflinching gaze at the blazing glory of Christ. We need to look and live. And if we don't look, 
at that glory of Christ, then we won't live. Or if we look carelessly, if we look haphazardly, then we will not overcome sin and temptation in our lives. We will limp along in our Christian walk. We will never enjoy all the blessings that God intends for us as His children. We will fail to grow in Christ and be transformed from one degree to another into His image. We need to think more carefully about Jesus' incarnation and the fact that He truly became man. And the author of Hebrews helps us to do this by affirming that Jesus was truly man and he gives us five reasons why it was necessary for him to become man. So look with me again at verse 14, which reads like this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. The word therefore here draws our attention back to verse 11, where the author has already stated that he who sanctifies, that is, Jesus Christ, who is the author of our salvation, and who, has made, who was made complete through his sufferings, and those who are sanctified, that's us, right? We are the ones who need to grow. We are the ones who need to move along in the process of change and Christ-likeness. We are both from the same Father. Christ is the Son of God, and we are, by faith, God's adopted children. Therefore, we have the same Father, and Christ, the author says, is not ashamed to call us brothers. And this already begins to lay the foundwork and, and affirms that Jesus is truly human. It is so true that he identifies with us. He is on the same level as us when it comes to humanity. And so he goes on in verse 14 and he says, He shares in our blood and flesh. Now most translations uh, for stylistic reasons, because it's, it's idiomatic in English, say flesh and blood. But the writer literally writes blood and flesh. No doubt because the emphasis in the scriptures is consistently on blood. It is the blood that is the life of man. A common characteristic of people, that is every one of us from Adam until the youngest here, is that we have a common nature of flesh and blood, and Jesus does also. But know what it says here about Jesus, how careful this language is. It says, before he, or when he, he came to share a physical nature, before, we had a physical nature, but he partook of a physical nature. The, the author uses a different verb. We share in the same nature, but Jesus partook of that nature. Now, sh- now having and, and partaking are, are synonyms, but there's a little bit of a different meaning. Humans have something in common, but Jesus received something. He partook of it. This same verb in the New Testament uh, talks about receiving or partaking bread. 
partaking of the fruit of the crop, receiving milk, receiving food on the table. It always refers to something you receive to yourself that is outside of yourself. And that is what Jesus did. He received humanity to himself. He already existed as divine God, divine being. He did not replace his divinity with humanity. He added his humanity to his divinity. It's a mystery. And the two remain, as we said, as they defined, without change, without division, without confusion, without composition, combination. He added the same nature as we have. But why did he do this? Well, verse 14 gives us the first reason that he did this. After the author establishes, reaffirms that Jesus truly is one of us, he tells us why. We see a very important theological word, a very common biblical word, so that, with a purpose. And that purpose in verse 14 is, so that he could render powerless him who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now, why would the author of Hebrews say that Satan has the power of death? Clearly, the devil doesn't have greater power than God. God is sovereign over life and death. He determines our days. The devil himself is on a leash. He is, he is under God's control. So what does the Bible say about Satan? How is it possible that he has the power of death? Well, Jesus said that Satan is a murderer, and we know that he brought death upon all mankind by tempting Adam and Eve. He is the author of sin, according to Jesus. Sin brings about death. We know that from Romans chapter 6, verse 23. So it seems best to conclude that Satan uses the fear of death to gain control over people in their lives. Satan can demand death for guilty sinners. And as our adversary, he accuses and he weighs us down with the burdens of our own sin. A burden that we cannot carry alone, even though so many people try to do. What does Jesus do to the one who has this power of death? The author says he renders him powerless. Literally, he disemploys him. Satan did not cease to exist, we know that, but Jesus, we could say, defanged him. His stinger was removed. How? One commentator says this, it was through death. It was necessary that the Son of God become man since a human death was required for the sin that separated man from God and rendered man subject to the devil. Only a man could die And only the God-man could die for the sins of the world. Paul writes in Galatians, to explain the same truth, Jesus came as one under the law. He placed himself under the law with us who are under the law in order to redeem those who are under the law. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. The law requires death. For sin. Jesus' perfect life and his perfect death as the God man satisfied 
that demand. His life is worth more than our lives. His life is worth more than all of our lives put together. And he took it away. He took away the demand for death. He took away the threat of death, which is the tool of the devil. He did so with his own death. But in order to die, he had to become a man. He became a man to render powerless him who has the power of death. We already see here the vicarious, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. He died so that we would be freed from the threat and fear of death. So I ask you, what would you do for him who gives you life? How will you honor him who made your life possible? Beloved, Christ didn't die for us because we were worth it, because we deserved it, because we're great people and very likable. He did it for his own glory to make us into something that will bring him glory and bring honor and glory to his Father. We find a second purpose or reason that Jesus became man in the second half of verse 15. Look there with me. It says, And might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. The author continues and adds a second reason immediately. And might also free those through the fear of death who were through the fear of death subject to slavery all of our lives. Do you realize that this was your state? We are all slaves to the fear of death. Now that fear may express itself in different ways. From the person who never leaves their home because they fear that, they fear that some germ will, will catch them, and kill them, to the daredevil who tries to cheat death and, and jumps off rocks or, or drives recklessly, and everyone in between. We all fear death. Some of us fantasize in life because we can't uh, accept the fact that, that, that death is a real possibility. So we live in a fantasy world that we create or vicariously through movies or games. But Jesus completely frees us from this fear of death. Literally, he enables us to settle or dismiss the fear of death. In verse 14, our physical condition was described as as blood and flesh, and the threat of physical death was emphasized. But now in verse 15, the emphasis is on our moral state. We are slaves to fear because of our fear of that death, what death brings, not just physical death, but eternal spiritual death. We live in fear. But by becoming a man... Jesus converts slaves of fear and death into slaves of righteousness. 
slaves to God. We do not cease to be slaves. The same word is used here as is used of other believers who are slaves of obedience in Romans chapter 6. Slaves of righteousness also in Romans chapter 6. Paul, Timothy, James, Epaphras, the early disciples were all referred to as slaves of Christ Jesus or of God. This is a key part of our identity as Christians, but there's nothing demeaning about it. We are slaves of the Most High God, slaves of the King who laid down His life for us when there was no benefit to Him personally. We are privileged slaves, blessed slaves, honored slaves who live to serve a loving and kind and generous God. But this was not always the case. We began as slaves to the fear of death, slaves of sin. And the only way that we could become slaves of Christ and be freed from our enslavement to the fear of death is that Jesus Christ became a man and through his own death set us free, redeemed us. So the eternal Son of God became a man to annul the power of Satan and to set free those who lived in the fear of death. Move on to to verse 17. We find another reason why Jesus became man, why the eternal Son of God became man. But we need to read verses 16 and 17 together. The author writes, For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We see that in verse 16 that Jesus specifically came for mankind. He came for sinners. Those who would believe, the elect. The author mentions the descendants of Abraham, and that could specifically result, uh, relate to the uh, Jewish nation, but it more likely re- relates to or refers to all of Abraham's descendants by faith. As Paul said, surely it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The point is that. Jesus didn't come to save angels. Angels either do not need to be redeemed, or if they rebelled, they can never be redeemed. But the plan of redemption, the sacrificial system, was not created for angels. It is man who needs a high priest, and that is why Jesus came. And that is the third reason. The eternal Son of God became man so that he could be, notice it in verse 17, a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Jesus became man so that he could be our high priest. This is the first time that the author of Hebrews mentions the theme high priest of the high priesthood. But it is a very important theme. He goes on to describe it and talk about the implications of it. Fifteen times he talks about Jesus, our high priest. And the high priest in the Old Testament had important functions. 
really from the time of Ezra, when the Jews returned to Israel, all the way through the New Testament, that high priesthood became more of a political office that to some degree replaced the, the figurehead that the Davidic king was supposed to be. But, but earlier, there were very specific roles that the high priest had in the law. Jesus, of course, brings these two offices together, both the king and the priest, as well as the prophet. But we find in the Old Testament that the high priest carried out various roles. He was a teacher. He provided oracles or decisions from God. He prayed for the people. It said in uh, Numbers that he protected the sanctuary, not allowing those who were not to have access. We also find that he encouraged soldiers. He even supervised the census. We also see that the high priest served as the judge over other corrupt priests. But the most important role of the high priest was in the Day of Atonement, which we know as Yom Kippur today. And we really don't have time to, to look at this passage, but I would encourage you to write down Leviticus chapter 16 and go back and, and read through what was required in this ceremony. It was the most important ceremony of the year. It, was, it happened once a year, and the purpose was to cleanse the nation and the priests and the high priest himself from their sin. We see in 16 chapter four, or chapter 16, verse 4, that the priest had special, garment, special garments that he wore for that day. We also see in in verses 6 and 11, that the priest had to offer sacrifices for himself. That was separate from the sacrifice for the people. He himself had to be cleansed in order to offer the sacrifice of cleansing on behalf of others. Even as you read through it, you'll see that, that the high priest had to cleanse himself, had to literally bathe in the midst of the ceremony. After he had offered the sacrifice in the Holy of Holies, and before he continued the ceremony. But Jesus became man so he could take this role himself. To carry out all these duties for us, to teach us, to reveal to us God's final word and his final solution for sin, to pray for us, to encourage us in our battles, to keep, keep watch over us, and to secure for us approach to God. But most of all, he cleanses us from our sin. Not once a year in a repeated ceremony, not certainly not in a repeated mass or when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, but in one sacrifice of himself that cleanses us forever when we look to him in Faith. And the author of Hebrews makes this clear. Just flip over to uh, chapter 7, verse 27. As he explains how Jesus fulfills the law, he says he does, he does not need daily, like the high priest, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he died once for all when he offered up himself. Or chapter 10, verse 4. 
For it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats take away, to take away sins. And then look down in verses 10 through 12. The author writes, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus became our high priest to sacrifice himself once and for all to remove all need of sin sacrifices. But that's not all there is to his priesthood. The author tells us what kind of high priest he became. One who is faithful and merciful. One who cares for us. One who shows us mercy. One who opens the door of grace to us. He is faithful. He will never abandon us. He will never forsake us. If we belong to him, he belongs to us forever. But note what it says back in chapter 2 at the beginning of verse 17. Again, emphasizing the extent of the incarnation. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. This brings us back to the beginning. If we underestimate the humanity of Christ... If we neglect to think about the humanity of Christ, if we, if we think that he was so different than us that his temptations were somehow easier or they weren't really temptations at all, then I believe we will not draw near to Christ. We will not experience his full mercy. We will fail to experience that faithfulness. We will not open up to him. We will not walk with him in closeness. Because we always think that he is fundamentally different from us. And he is fundamentally different from us. Don't don't forget that. Don't misunderstand me. He is outside of categories. He is completely different. He is God. But he is also 100% man. Very man. He knows us. He's walked in our shoes He cares for us. He is merciful and faithful to his brothers and his sisters. He, the eternal son, became man so that he could render powerless the one who has the power of death, so that he could free those who lived in slavery under the fear of death, and so that he could become our high priest. We feel like we're just skipping across these five verses, which are so rich and teaching us about the extent to which the Savior identifies with us and why he had to add perfect humanity to his perfect divinity. We find the next reason, fourth reason, at the end of verse 17. This is the logical outflow of becoming our high priest. We've already touched on it. He did this, the text says, look at the very end of verse 17. Put your eyes on it. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. We've already mentioned that he did this by sacrificing himself. 
But one of the reasons that Jesus became man is to make propitiation for our sins. Your translation may say make atonement or, or take away the sins of the people. But the key component of this word here is indeed propitiation. It's a word we do not use very often. And we don't have a lot of time to get into this, but there is an intense debate of, about what this word means. It, it is used just a few times in the New Testament. It's used also in Luke chapter 18, verse 13, where it clearly means simply to be merciful. But the noun form is used twice by John in his epistle, first epistle, where he says he is the propitiation for our sins. Paul and, and the author of Hebrews both use it to refer to the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, which is called the mercy seat, the place where propitiation, the sacrifice, takes place. The blood is, is sprinkled there. But in a nutshell, the debate is this. Does this word mean expitiate, which means to, to remove the sin, to cover up the sin, to wipe away the sin? Does it focus on the removal of sin? Or does it really mean propitiate, which focuses on turning God's wrath against sin away from sinners who deserve that wrath. Now, of course, modern men and many believers today don't want to talk about the wrath of God. They want to save God's reputation. They think talking about wrath and being wrathful, turning the wrath of God on your beloved son, crushing your son to be pleased, satisfied that's too bloodthirsty that's primitive talk primitive religion it's too pagan for our modern ears and we don't want god to suffer with that kind of reputation but that's what god says about himself that's his revelation his words studying the use of this word group there is no way to avoid the fact that this word, propitiation, includes both. It includes certainly the taking away of sin, the covering of sin, but that has to be done following the turning away of God's wrath. One does not take place without the other. By averting God's wrath from us to himself, Jesus Christ is able to cover our sins, to forgive our sins, to take away the sins of the world. And the key is back again in Leviticus chapter 16. I really encourage you to go back and look at that. Remember in that ceremony, there were two goats, right? There was one goat that was the sin sacrifice. That was the goat that gave its life. His throat was slit. His blood was spilt. His blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. That was in order to satisfy God's righteous demand. It gave its life to turn away God's wrath. Death was necessary, and the death of that goat once a year was a foreshadowing of the death of Jesus Christ once and for all, which would ultimately satisfy the wrath of God. That sacrifice was to avert the wrath of God. But there was another goat called the scapegoat, if you remember. 
And the high priest would lay his hands on that goat's head and confess the sins of the nation. And then he would set that goat free outside the camp, into the wilderness, away from the people. And that was a picture. That was a picture of taking the sins away, removal of the sins. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so our Savior fulfills both prophecies, both demands. That is what it means for Him to be the propitiation for the sins of the people. But to be that sacrifice, He had to be man, the God-man, the perfect mediator between man and and God. He had to be man to be our representative, and he had to be God to lead us to the Father, and that's what he did. Perfect deity adding perfect humanity in the incarnation so that he could be our propitiation. He is man like us, but he is also God, very God, outside of all categories. And that is why there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. No one else is qualified. We have to move on. Let's read verse 18 again. Look at it there with me. It says, For since he himself was tempted, and that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of of those who are tempted. This is the fifth reason why Jesus had to become man. He had to become man so that he could help us when we are tempted by sin. The writer of Hebrews is is very precise. He's very intentional in his use of language. He states that he certainly... Jesus certainly suffered when he was tempted, and it has lasting impact, lasting consequence. The lasting effect is that he is today still able to help all who are tempted. Jesus was certainly tempted. His temptations were real. And later in chapter 4, verse 15, you know that it says that he is tempted in every respect as us, yet without sin. Without sin. It's the one qualification. We tend to think of Jesus' suffering on the cross. Maybe the time leading up to the cross, certainly in the garden, we, we think about that. But maybe in the back of our minds, we think something like this. You know, he was so holy. He was walking with God so closely, never straying from the Father's will. So intimate with the Father that, look, the things that bother me, the things that frustrate me, the things that trip me up, those things would never trip up Jesus. They would never bother him. Sure, he was betrayed by his friends, all of his friends. Sure, he was attacked by his enemies. Of course, he dealt with financial instability. He had no place to lay his head. 
Yeah, I remember his own brothers provoked him. It was later that they believed in him. His mother, maybe even with good intentions, tried to manipulate some good deeds out of him. And he accommodated her in that to reveal his glory. But he did the deed, turning water into wine at a wedding, saving the situation. No doubt Jesus was disappointed, deeply disappointed, with every person he ever interacted with. Every day of his life, he looked upon the world and saw what it was not, but knew what it could have been. But come on, he was so close to God. His theology and practice were so consistent, that couldn't have bothered him like it would bother me. Look, beloved, what I want you to stop and think about this morning, what I want you to consider as you go from here, maybe even read further in Hebrews chapter 14, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 5, go back and read Philippians chapter 2, And reread the Gospels. Jesus became a man. He certainly suffered through real temptation. And he did that so that he can help you when you are tempted. He understands what you are going through right now. There's not a situation that you face. There's not a hurt that you have felt. There's not a disappointment that you have experienced. There's not a burden that you carry that Jesus Christ himself did not fully taste except without sin. If we think in any way That Jesus cannot really understand what we're going through because he was God, very God. And at any moment, he could whip off his glasses and turn into Superman like Clark Kent. Then we have the wrong view of his divinity and of his humanity. We're not clearly seeing the glory of Christ in his humanity together with his deity, and our souls are poorer for it. I think if you think about it just a little bit, I think you'll realize that his temptations were far greater, far more intense than our temptations. The Son of God... The eternal Son of God became man, became our Jesus, our salvation. Became man. And he did so, uh, first and foremost, to please the Father. To fulfill the Father's will. So that the Father could demonstrate his sovereign grace to sinners display his glory in a different way than he would have if he righteously and justifiably condemned every sinner immediately for eternity. 
But the author of Hebrews tells us that the eternal Son became man so that he could annul Satan and his power over us, so that he could deliver us from the captivity to fear of death, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest, so that he could make propitiation for our sins, take away God's wrath that we deserve, and so that he can help us today, this afternoon, this week, the temptations that we face. He knows your state. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your situation. Go to Him. Heed His call. Pay attention to His invitation this morning. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Beloved, rush with confidence to the throne of grace that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in your time of need. Flee to Christ. We talk about gospel-centered ministry. We talk about cross-centered life. And we should talk about those things. But why is the cross important? Because of the Savior that hung on that cross and died for us. Why is the gospel had meaning? Because it's the story of Jesus Christ, God-man, dying for sinners, for us. And all of our focus on the gospel and the cross, don't lose Christ. Our Christianity, our faith, is a walk with Christ, a relationship with a Savior who knows us, who understands us. Give up your own sins. Give up your own thinking. Give up your own wisdom, your own trivial pursuits of this world. Admit that you're poor. Admit that you're weary. Rush to Him. And in His arms, you will find 10,000, a myriad of eternal charms and pleasure forevermore. Please bow with me. Father God, forgive us for so often losing Christ in our Christianity. Forgive us for seeking out others when the Savior stands ready. Help us this morning, Lord, I pray, as we go from this place, to be full of thoughts of our Savior, that we might draw near to Him, that we might heed His invitation, that we might walk closely with Him. Lord, I know that there are people here 
who have not come to Christ in faith, who stand afar off, who do not understand because they have not submitted and yielded and fallen before the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, work in their hearts. Bring them. Be pleased to give them the will to come. And Lord, as we leave from this place and enter a world that assaults us on all sides, appeals to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and our pride of life, help us draw near to Christ, walking with Him, full of thoughts with Him, knowing Him, gazing at His blazing glory, that we might be more like Him from one degree to another, transformed into His glory for His sake, for His name, for His proclamation throughout the world. And we pray in our precious Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.